Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm your friend Faraz Osman and on today's show we hear all the gossip from Content London. Extraordinary exclusion. Our panellists discuss diversity across the UK's media industry. Ofcom's annual report directs the BBC to do more for lower income audiences. And who is making media moves in our media quiz? That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, a collective of publications including The Guardian, The New York Times and Le Monde have urged the US to end its prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Elon Musk provoked further outrage by ending Twitter's COVID-19 harmful misinformation policy on November the 23rd. Twitter also emerged as a central channel for the China protests. Citizens are using VPNs to get material onto global channels. Selena Cheng and Newly Purnell at the Washington Post have mused. How Twitter handles such issues as China experiences its most widespread dissent in decades will be an early test for the platform's new owner. Closer to home, the BBC plans significant cutbacks to its Northern Ireland radio services. Up to 40 jobs are at risk and further cuts are expected in the new year. And as we race towards the end of the year, Spotify has relaunched its wrapped marketing campaign with a new music personality feature. Listeners are assigned one of 16 categories based on their listener habits. Options include adventurer, fan clubber and specialist. But on today's show, we have two media masters with us to tackle the latest industry headlines. First up, we have Tara Conlon. Tara, you've been in Content London earlier this week. Fill us in with all the happenings that's going on down. Uh, Well, uh, yeah, actually, it was very, very busy. I think they had about two and a half thousand, three thousand people. It was at um, King's Cross, King's Place and the very glamorous um, uh, St Pancras Hotel you know, everybody who's anybody in media land was there. Yeah, I don't, Tara, I don't actually, I don't actually get it because it's got the worst type, Content London is probably the worst conference title of all time. So like, to listeners that don't know exactly what it, what is it? Like, what are you meant to do there? What do you find out? Is it a, well, a special world where all the well, media elite come together and discuss how to... What, sort of like Davos, but... <laughs> Davos for telly. Telly types, yeah, Davos for telly. They're never in, they're never in unglamorous locations, are they? They're always like in somewhere, some beautiful hotel or some you know, Monte Carlo or something, TV conferences. So, yeah, it's a bit like you sort of think Edinburgh, but um, it's it's very, very global, international media buyers. I mean, I'm not saying Edinburgh isn't, but it is more globally focused. But, yeah, you sort of think content London or content London. But um, <laughs> it's, so it's run by C21 and it's huge and it was really buzzing, actually. There's lots of people there doing lots of deals. Do some, do some name dropping, Tara. Who, who did you spot? Who did you see? Who was floating around that you're like? Oh, well, Louis Theroux was there, obviously talking about uh, his company and the second series of Louis Theroux interviews. There were lots of grand fromages from like Channel 4. I was on, I was plugging myself here, but I was chairing two panels and we had one about drama, one about factual Mike Donnell was there, you know, some so big cheeses from sort of Fox and uh, Disney. Apparently Disney's content, some of their clips that they were showing were bought over. They, they included security guards, so I was told. So, yeah, it was sort of uh, some of the latest clips, some of the latest shows were being shown. I love that our, our streaming industry has got so wild that it needs its own bodyguards just to kind of enter the room. That sounds like it's uh, if, you, if you didn't know that streaming <laughs> has arrived, you definitely know now when they come in with the heavies. Also with us is Professor Emerita of Journalism at City University, Liz Howe. 
Lovely to have you with us. Has anything caught your attention in the news this week? The media news in particular. There's loads of news going on, but Liz, give us the media news. By the way, I've got painters in. Can you hear they've started hoovering and banging upstairs? Is it okay? Uh, it's authentic. I kind of like the idea of, of Liz redecorating while, uh, while we're recording this. Well, I was really thinking of the news because I was thinking of the situation in Iran and the fact that 1,500 uh, young people are in detention there and could face death. I know that's not, in a sense, media news. Well, it's not media news, but it's the sort of thing I wish the media was taking more notice of. It's a wild story. I mean, it feels like the Iran situation has, has really started to take hold. I mean, everything is it's bleeding into everything. Obviously, there's the whole situation with what's going on at the World Cup, as well as what's going on at home as well. I mean, we've got a lot of chat about sports washing because of what's going on in Qatar at the moment. Are, are Iran successfully managing to keep their kind of entertainment and football profile away from what's going on in the country? Or, or are the two just... And unseparable. That, that's a really interesting point. I think in, in a bizarre way, that is what's happening. And one of the problems, I think, with the, with the World Cup is that it, it's so football, obviously it's all about football, but there's such an intent to keep it away from politics. And so they say that politics are interfering with the football, yada, yada, but in my opinion, not nearly enough. And I think the situation in Iran is so horrendous that we, we ought to know more about it. And I'm bothered that we don't. In fact, there have been one or two interviews with Iranians saying, well, the BBC has tended... Not to ignore this, but to downplay it. And I think that's not necessarily true. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. But this is, for me, a particularly difficult, poignant, horrible story because of the, the young women involved. And so many young women are facing death in Iran just for wanting not to wear a scarf. And it's really quite terrifying. So from my point of view, that's a sort of horrible sort of track that's rumbling along that perhaps we're not listening to enough. Well, let's see what happens and let's hope that the British media do start taking more attention of it. So diversity issues have been in the spotlight across media this week. I think a lot of this actually came through from the Inclusion Festival. It was an online festival that was happening with Channel 4, where Christian Guru Murphy made the case that television has done well in terms of on-screen diversity, but often that masks a monoculture higher up the chain. Liz, did you see what Christian said? Have you got any thoughts about the lack of diversity among top TV executives? I mean, it feels from where I'm sitting, we've had this conversation a million times. Is, is are things changing? Well, it's, if they are changing, it's painfully slow. It's interesting because of, if you do it in terms of representation of the, the numbers of people of various types in the UK, for example, with our expert women programme, it's very much based on the fact that 50%, 51% of the population is female. So is it being represented fairly? And in fact, in terms of, of, of racial diversity or ethnic diversity, you've got a big division between, say, London, where it's 25%, and outside London, where it's probably about 16%. And in fact, now Birmingham and Manchester are catching up and are, are becoming cities more dominated by ethnic minorities. I don't know if dominated is quite the right word, but the proportions are changing. It's very, very hard to immediately catapult this into, say, the management status area, because if the people aren't coming up and encouraged to come up, you can't suddenly find them. Krishnan himself is from what I would think of as a very advantaged background. His father was an eminent medic up in uh, Lancashire. That doesn't mean that the point he's making is in, in any way diminished, but it's, it's hard to know in practical terms what you're going to do about it. Obviously, it's an awareness thing. What I think there should be is some sort of non-media commission, or perhaps through Ofcom, where there's a 10-year plan so that the people who are in their 20s now can become managers in 10 years' time because you can't just pluck somebody from nowhere who's not got the confidence or the background You've got to encourage people to, to work through the system. I would say that in years and years of teaching at City University, I have come across so many brilliant ethnic minority students who really just fade away. They don't get the chances. I can remember 10 years ago, which is not that long in the great scheme of things, a BBC executive saying to me, oh, you know, we'd really like a, a black candidate for this particular. It was a work placement. It'd be fantastic. And I said, oh, well, yeah, I've got. Quite a few people would be really good. And he said, but, you know, it'd be good if they'd been to Oxford. And you think, well, you know, if they've been to Oxford, they don't actually necessarily need your help. It's very difficult because there was still this attitude that, you know, they had to prove themselves. It's a bit like women. They had to be better to be equal. Krishnan is absolutely right. But the practicalities of how you achieve it are really difficult. And we need a plan. Tara, you know, obviously you're at Content London this week and... It feels like everyone's got a license now to look through the speakers and look through the panellists to see if it is diverse and both with gender and ethnicity and sexuality and class. Did you get a sense that things have moved on? I mean, you've been to a few of them now, right? So is there a sense that the, the makeup of these panels is improving when it comes to diversity? Or are you actually seeing that at those top level decision makers, 
that, that do turn up and get on stage at Content London, it's the same old faces saying the same old things? I think things have changed. You know, from when I first started writing about telly, it was predominantly white men on the panels, that, that it has changed. Then there's a lot more, lot more women. The last year or two, probably, they're slightly more diverse panels, I would say. Depending on where you go, you know, it's such an international conference. That's not to say there isn't more to do. And I think, you know, going to your point about uh, what do you do long term, I think bodies like Screen Skills, which is the industry training body, they have been trying to help people, not just, you know, in terms of ethnic diversity, but also in terms of class as well. Full disclaimer, I've, you know, done um, a bit of work with them interviewing people for case studies. And, you know, it comes down to there are people just needing money for a train fare or needing money for wet weather gear. And I think sometimes people who've been in telly for a long time, perhaps, you know, pretty wealthy these days, they don't realize that sometimes it just comes down to they need the money for a hotel for a night to, to come down for an audition. Or there was one girl who wanted to be a camerawoman. She just couldn't afford the wet weather gear. You know, it's, mm. it's a couple of hundred quid. So that is a lot for you know, a, a student, someone starting out. And if you can remove some of those barriers, that, that will help. And you published an article, an interview last week, where you talked about the Bridgerton effect of people of colour on screen. Can you give us a bit more intel on that? Yeah, so that was Sarah Collins who wrote The Confessions of Franny Langton, which is a brilliant period drama about uh, slavery based on her book of the same name. It's for ITVX. She said, you know, some people are saying, it's great, you know, Bridgerton has brought colourblind casting to telly and made people more aware of having more diversity on screen she said but we also need basically not to gloss over the historical fact that a lot of people had an awful 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 time a lot of uh, so the the book is based on a woman who's come over from jamaica who's who's enslaved but it, it is essentially she's an intelligent woman and how does she navigate london society when there is endemic racism going on there and she said that sarah collins she said some people go oh no no but you know People from minorities are doing so well. Your dukes and duchesses now. I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what she said. You know, they're dukes and duchesses now. And actually, that's not the, the, the full story we need, you know, to actually look at the history of what has gone on in Britain and class. That's the focus, essentially, of it. It's a really nuanced period drama from a great production called Drama Republic. And, they, and they've just let her adapt it beautifully by TVX, new streaming service. Liz, did you want to jump in? One of the things that's really interesting is that when you get a little bit of success, when you get a little bit better representation, people jump up and down and immediately say, you know, job done! Oh, you know, and I found with, with the women on, on screen thing, it was, why do you want more women on the news? You've got Fiona Bruce. And it's a bit like, oh, why do you need more black people? You've got Clive Myrie, you know. And it's very interesting how that people extrapolate from one to, oh, it's a complete success across the board. And that's exactly what we've got to watch out for and move on from. We still haven't had a director general of the BBC yet, who's a woman, have we? So we've had a chairman, so Diane Coyle did it. I'm not saying Tim Davies should step down now at all, but, you know, he was saying last week at the Variety Club Awards, he, he was kind of joking, he made a speech and he said, you know, crisis might get in one day, but no, I'm not saying he should go at all. But maybe that's the kind of like the last one. Well, it's quite interesting because you've got women successfully becoming good managers and getting to the top of media companies. There are two points about that. The first is that often when it's a question of business and risk taking and investment, women don't do very well. So they're fine in establishment positions or public service type broadcasting or of strong companies that have been there a long time. But when it comes to startups and new things, they don't succeed as well. And in fact, I think it was seven major women business leaders were saying this week that it's much harder to get investment just because you're a woman. You're not trusted by the old boys network. And of course, a lot of the money in this country is in the hands of very few people who have probably been to boys public schools and they look after each other. And that's certainly been my experience trying twice to set up independently, that it is hard or harder to get to get the money. That's really interesting. That's shocking, isn't it? When we look at the women who are successful, they tend to be in the established companies where it's already 
financially safe, although they're taking fantastic decisions and making you know big changes, but they're not actually starting up. We tend to associate successful risk taking with men, not with women. And Which is interesting because Christian did mention that inclusion is probably going to be even more contested as the economic conditions start tightening across the whole of the economy. So you know, are we are we going to see even bigger problems both across class and and ethnic diversity and and gender diversity where that risk taking becomes a bit a bit even trickier than what is now. Definitely, definitely. I've, I've always said that in, in a crisis, it's always women overboard first, women and children overboard. Um, and that's what happens because people stick with what they think they know and what they know is, is men. So the, there is this association of risk-taking and, um, and adventure with men and, and women are sort of safe and caring and lovely and all that stuff, all that rubbish. So that, that's difficult. And also in the pandemic, a lot of, of men came to the fore in, in science and we tended to go along with, with that. The other problem is that inclusion is a very complicated thing and there are a lot of groups with lots of vested interests, quite rightly. And so if you look at something basic like women, 50% of the population, as a group, that tends to be out of fashion just now. So we're looking at disability and we're looking at gender, and we're looking at race and ethnicity. So the, the basic problem, which is that half of our population is disadvantaged, is, is out of fashion right now. And that kind of brings us on to our next story, because also in the news this week was a study on diversity in the newsrooms. The missing perspectives of women in the news report found in editorial leadership, roles and news coverage, women continue to be significantly underrepresented. For every woman who is an editor-in-chief, there's at least two, and in some places as many as 12, of men are at the same level. And in Britain, only 37% of media organisations surveyed had a female editor-in-chief at the helm, and only 1% had a woman of colour at the helm. So Liz, in recent years, you've also completed research around gender inequality in the news. So what, did, what did you make about this new report? Is this progress or are we going backwards? Well, really, it's really quite stationary. And in fact, I think we probably are going backwards, as I said, because of the pandemic, because of general fear. Everybody you know, rushes back to what, what is known and what is known and trusted is men. In fact, I was talking to somebody uh, quite recently who said, uh, oh, it's so such a relief now in government that we've got sort of at the top of both major parties, we've got two sensible men who know what they're doing. And I think there is a feeling that, that that's uh, something reassuring. We, what we are doing at City University in our ex-work women programme is that we are developing research outside of the UK. And we've been working very much with people in Ghana, women in Ghana. And we've just got a small grant, a very small grant, I might say, to um, extend this research where we've been measuring, counting the number of women who appear in, in Ghana media. And we think we've got problems. This is appalling 11 times as many men as women on the Ghanaian major news programmes. And this is a country where women are highly educated and some of them have very important posts and so on, but they're completely neglected. And it's quite sad that the attitudes are as they are because one of the women said, um, well, you know, it's very difficult. If you want to get married or have a partner, you don't want to be seen as a firebrand. And to me, that seemed so outdated an attitude, but it's very, very prevalent. Anyway, we're hoping to extend this to India as well and some parts of South America but it, it's slow going you have to get the women in those countries to want to do it and often they don't want to rock the boat and then you've got to get monitors that will actually count and, and then you've got to calibrate it all it's not cheap but we can do it um, with help from voluntary monitors and, and women in these countries who want to push it so it's just just so painfully slow and you, you know it's like three steps forward and two steps back sometimes so you can get a bit dispirited, but we're going on. And also, lots of people get bored with it. It's like I was saying, there's fashions in these things. I was at the Women in Journalism party last night, which was great. And I was talking to a woman there, and she's had the same experience as me, although she's about 30 years younger, in trying to talk about women in, in broadcasting. And this guy would say to her, you banging on about that again. You know, the, we've got Fiona Bruce, what more do you need sort of attitude? So oh, it's slow going. Tara, you know, as a freelance journalist, you, you must have been in mm. lots of newsrooms where you've you've seen the makeup of like how the staff that are there and, and the people that are in power. Are, are you seeing this report reflected in, in reality in, in British newsrooms and newsrooms across the world? Well, actually, I don't, I don't really get to go into newsrooms really uh, that much these days. So I'm just looking at the media patch, you know, there are some women, I think my age, there's a few of us, but I think, you know, when, when you're younger, I think there are more. Uh, the, the thing that comes into play is, is motherhood, frankly. You know, if you have children, then that's, you know, part of the reason why I became freelance, you know. So that's something which, which needs to be taken into account and how that can be helped. The cost of childcare 
is a big factor. And it's about paying, you know, women enough so that we can bear those costs because frankly often we do have to bear them. You know, it is it is often shared between the partner as well, but sometimes it isn't. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, single mothers out there who are journalists as well. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed is pay, you know, pay people enough and they can afford the childcare to be able to to do that. And it's also, I think, you know, looking internationally, it's to do uh, sometimes can be to do with, with confidence or, you know, and endemic misogyny within the country in Pakistan as well. I know they've done a lot of work, the Thompson Foundation, I think have done quite a lot of work there with, you know, trying to help women who, who want to do journalism, you know, e- even bigger barriers out there than there are for us UK journalists. But it is interesting because we spoke earlier about the economic conditions that, that Christian brought up around diversity. But Tara, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, as a freelancer, you're working remotely and, and this kind of whole new remote world that, that the pandemic did accelerate. It, do you feel like that is going to be able to continue and it does mean that there's going to be access to other people from different backgrounds and different situations that are going to be able to get involved? Or are we moving back to the idea that I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people who are in positions of power saying everyone needs to get back into the office and, and that may disadvantage certain people from certain communities? I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted about this because I think particularly for a lot of younger journalists, you know, you learn a lot in, in the newsroom. I've learned a, a, you know, a hell of a lot from from my bosses and from my <laughs> colleagues. So I think for for younger journalists, I think it's it's imperative. But I think, again, yes, with those barriers to entry, a young journalist does not pay very much. A lot of my friends, you know, think, oh, journalism's very glamorous. And then you tell them how much, you know, a, a journalist starting out gets paid and it, it's not very much at all. So I think it's for some people, though, there will be the, those barriers to entry will come up again if they're having to travel. I, I have to say, you know, the the remote working has made people a lot more understanding of you know, journalists, you know, done interviews with duvets over my head to sort of like drown out builders in the background. People are now more understanding, I'd say, that if you aren't in an office all the time. But equally, I do see for, you know, a lot of editors, they want people around. There's those general sort of interactions. You, you get that. I, I you know, I, I do miss that sitting with your, you know, your team with your colleagues and you'll say, oh, I've heard this. And they'll say, oh, I've heard that. And you put the two and two together and suddenly, you know, you've got an even better and bigger story. So there, there's pros and cons to both sides, I'd say. Well, we've got even more on gender representation in our deep dive interview this week as we sat down with Luba Kosova, the author of Missing Perspectives of Women in News Report. Luba shared key findings, including why women continue to be underrepresented in news, why the gap is potentially costing billions and what we can all do about it. This report mm, focuses on understanding why there has been so little progress in improving on the representation of women uh, in news leadership and in newsrooms and as audiences in the last decades. So looking into the why and then more importantly, what can we do about it? So we focused on two areas, news leadership and coverage. Also overlaying race onto gender, which was incredibly important and uh, gave us so many insights. Another thing that we did, which has been done for the first time in, in the world, as far as we're concerned, is quantify what revenue can be generated if women were consuming as much news as men. So essentially what revenue is being lost because women are being lost and not um, and because news isn't relevant to them. So for the first time, we actually now have a number, uh, global number and also a number for, for the UK. Which is, what is that number? A potential cumulative revenue opportunity exists of 11 billion by 2027 and 38 billion by 2032 at a global level. And for the UK, the opportunity is 413 million by 2027 and 1.4 billion by 2032. And this is a conservative scenario, assuming that uh, news providers close the gap, the consumption gap between men and women, which at the moment, the addressable gap is about 12%. So men are more likely, 12% more likely, well, they consume 12% more news than women. So if the news industry closes one percentage point each year, these are the numbers we're going to end up with. It's not a scenario which is optimistic and unrealistic, essentially. It's a very conservative scenario. I mean, I mean that's, that's astonishing. That, I mean, particularly with, 
all of the pressures that the news media is, is facing right now commercially, just to kind of hear that there's this one simple solution that can bring in so much more revenue is it's heartwarming, but it's also, you know, it's scary that we've missed the opportunity for so long. So so it's hopeful that those those commercial figures may actually get people to sit up and, and take some notice. Um, you mentioned earlier about the UK figures. Give us a bit more insight into kind of what else you discovered about the UK industry in particular. Um, it has felt that we've had a few very high profile women news editors and political editors. But is is that um, is that born through the actual statistics that are coming through? That is, I'm so loving that you uh, raised this point because there is this uh, bias, there is a fallacy of the high profile representation. So uh, what's happening is that in the UK, um, there are 37% of editors-in-chief are women, which is the highest amongst um, the uh, amongst the other countries that we research. The other five, actually, it's on par with South Africa. And there is a danger, and that happens all the time, that journalists in the UK think, "Oh, this is we've done this. This is sorted. Look at how many women there are." But first of all, it's not parity. It's thirty-seven percent. Secondly, they're very high profile, and that creates a sense of progress, which isn't there underneath. When you look underneath so for example the proportion as i mentioned uh, at the beginning of political the most senior political editors who are women in the uk is uh, one in five which is very low obviously the proportion of editors who um, foreign affairs beats is one in three again it it's it is very low and what i should say is for example looking at the representation of women in ministerial roles which is one in four and in parliament one in three the news industry when it comes to political bits is doing worse it's lagging behind representation in society and and that shouldn't be the case i wanted to also share another astonishing statistics there are no women of color editors in health uh, po- politics or business, economics, business, or foreign affairs, none at all. Uh, so they are essentially locked out of um, decision making at the highest level. I, I mean, that's astonishing, particularly because when you consider a lot of those stories disproportionately affect those those marginal communities as well. You know, the health issues, the the, the foreign affairs issues. That you know, the, these are stories that. Um, uh, that that do disproportionately affect people of colour, and yet you're saying that there's there's no one really at senior level reporting on those issues. Absolutely, that is when I when we were researching, and we found this. First of all, the team went and looked full times to check with the, the, that the findings were correct, and secondly, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Oh my gosh, how is it possible that? People of colour and women of colour have been hit so dramatically, for example, disproportionately uh, by the pandemic. And yet there isn't a single woman of colour at the top to actually tell those stories. And when I did the interviews, very often editors were saying that female editors, that they would uh, put forward stories that would be shut down as that's not a story because... um, it's not considered as a story by the prevalent news culture, which is very dominated by men. And one, in fact, uh, Jane Barrett from Reuters, um, I've quoted her in the report, talk, talks about learning what a story is and how to report a story by osmosis. And she said that she learned from amazing, very talented uh, uh, journalists, but they were all, almost all men. And therefore, you learn to um, not to see stories that are really important for certain groups, uh, not to see them, not to recognize them, and then not to cover them. And a problem that I have not looked at the report in detail, but one of those problems is the lack of trust and the fact that so many of these audiences from minority groups, all women, trust news less they leave news and that's a real problem ultimately for democracy and how how functioning the democracy will be if these audiences end up not engaging with news at all because they don't see themselves so you've given us a real sense of the landscape as it is now and also demonstrated the the kind of commercial as, as well as the moral and ethical values of of doing better in this space so for listeners who might be managers or senior leaders in this in the media and, and kind of want to address this 
issue of gender diversity in their workplace. What practical advice would you give them to make sure that we can get ourselves back on the right track? Organisation asked, so what's the one thing we could do? And unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. Because the problem is so pernicious and so structural, it has to be addressed systematically along the whole news value chain. But what I could say is that every incremental change of 1% will make a difference. And in in actual fact, um, what we have developed is a 12-step guide to implementing the 12 solutions themes of the report. So if you go on the landing page, it's a one-pager that literally uh, says these are the 12 steps you need to take in your organization. If you were really pushing for one thing, I, obviously I would say start with an audit. Understand what's happening in your organization in terms of your leadership, newsrooms and coverage and portrayal of women. How, what's the representation? How do you portray them? And please, please, please do so intersectionally. Don't look at just women, but also women of color because otherwise they remain invisible. And actually the women who need most help in newsrooms and news leadership end up with the least help because they're just simply not on anyone's radar. That was, that was Luba Kosova. For more practical solutions on fostering inclusion in your workplace, you can find my full interview with Luba on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash mediapod, where you'll be able to access an archive of deep dive interviews with all our media experts. That's patreon.com forward slash mediapod. It's now time for a short break, but stay tuned as we'll be back with Ofcom's latest report on the BBC, plus the quiz covering all the latest media moves. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we're back. And on our desk is the annual report from Ofcom, which has reported lower income viewers who account for almost a quarter of the population are less satisfied with the BBC and more likely to watch commercial outlets such as ITV. Tara, is this a surprise to you or could you see this coming a mile off? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, you look, I guess, uh, you look at, you know, the, the advertisers on ITV and you look at the perception that people have of um, the BBC. I mean, Obviously, on daytime, it's it's a slightly different story. But I think that the BBC, to be fair to the BBC, they've done a, a lot of work on trying to improve this, whether it's in comedy or drama. But it is, you know, it is still seen as more middle class. The tradition has been for the years, you know, it was more, ITV was more sort of working class and the BBC was, was more middle class. But I think that's kind of a broad brush stroke. And I don't think that really goes into the detail. The BBC is a large and complex organisation. But I think it, one of the things that really concerns me, actually, is when they said that the audience watches less than the rest of the population, BBC News. BBC News, I think, is at a real tipping point at the moment. And I think particularly the BBC is going to merge uh, its global news channel and its UK news channel. It's going to merge them. I think 
is going to potentially put even more people off BBC News. And when we came up to a cost of living crisis, but my concern and the concern of charities and the National Union for Journalists is what happens to those sort of mid-range stories, things like floods or things that are really important to, you know, the regions of the BBC. Again, I have some sympathy here for the BBC. They've got to make cuts because of cuts to the licence fee. And they've got this new digital first strategy. But then they're going to be losing content uh, from the news channel, which they would sometimes use on World Service. At the same time, they've got cuts to the World Service. So they'll be losing content there. And um, my, my concern is, you know, that it, is there going to be enough, you know, news content to go around? You know, the proof will be in the pudding when they see it on screen next year. But I just think it might be one of those things which they might then row back from. The politicians are seeing the proof of all these cuts. You know, there'll be fewer political stories on the news channel. So it'll be a political hot potato for the BBC. The Murdoch-owned papers, obviously, they've got the skin in the game. They've got, you know, talk TV. And I think the changes to the news channel, which the BBC say they've got to do, will be a complete gift to Sky News and GB News and talk TV because, you know, people will turn on onto there. And if you want trusted, impartial news... That's what the BBC is there for. But essentially, people are saying, well, why is the licence fee being used to fund output that is going to go out globally? What's going to happen to home news? I think coming down the line, you know, it, it could be a political hot potato for the BBC to have to deal with. And Liz, this isn't just about a uh, an issue around where the news is coming from and programming is, is put out. It's, it's also about the renewal of the licence fee that's coming up very quickly on the tracks and, and what that's going to mean for people being passionate and making sure they get behind saving the BBC or stopping any additional cuts. If we're going to see a quarter of the population being underrepresented on the BBC, they'll be less likely to, uh, to be a big advocate for the licence fee. Do you feel like with content not being tailored for those audiences that is going to present a significant risk to the renegotiation of the licence fee? Well, first of all, I don't think it's about underrepresentation of a demographic on screen. It's about that demographic's feeling about the BBC. And I think it's quite interesting because this is a sort of standalone survey. I don't remember this being done before. And I think that if you went back 10 years or 20 years, you'd have found a much bigger discrepancy between low-income people and the feelings of the BBC and what the BBC was providing. So I think there's always been a tendency for the BBC to be seen as the posh channel and ITV to be seen as the working people's channel. And that's, I mean, if you go back to my childhood, it was a huge difference. I mean, all the, the working class people in the north of England absolutely loved Granada and Yorkshire TV and watched it more than the BBC. So in a sense, I think that the division has actually probably narrowed and we haven't got anything to, to compare it with. The other problem is that the BBC is seen by most people as something that has to provide everything and it can't possibly do that. And that leads on to my next point, which is the funding of the BBC. Whilst people think that they should get absolutely everything for a relatively small price, they're going to be very critical. And therefore, the funding of the BBC has got to change and people have got to realise what they're paying for. Tara said people are paying for trust in news. Actually, that's what lots of us are paying for, but lots of other people are paying for the entertainment they think they should be getting on the BBC, and there is this mismatch of views. So a recalibration of how the BBC is paid for, I know we're always going on about this, and anyone who questions the licence fee is seen as a hideous you know, iconoclast. But the point is that people perceive the BBC as ne- needing to do too much for them individually. For example, I would pay my licence fee to see BBs alone now, I've got this grandchild, so we're all looking at different things. And, you know, I'm a great believer in trusted news and all that as well. You get a lot for your money, but people don't perceive it that way. We need to get the money differently so they know what they're paying for. And then there would not be this resentment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Liz. I mean, we saw the launch of the new entertainment show, The Traitors, on the BBC, which has been heavily trialled as their their new big entertainment hit. Did, you, did either of you catch it? Did you have thoughts about what it looked like and, and if it's something that is going to cut through? It's not something that would necessarily appeal to me, but it's something the BBC absolutely have to do. I mean, this this goes back to 1953 or whenever ITV hit the airwaves and the BBC suddenly realised its share had gone down to 25% and it had to have shows that appealed across the board and it's still the case. Whether they're successful, I mean, that's a, that's a different argument, but they do have to do that given the, the current way they're funded. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's about inform educating and entertaining and the bbc will always get flack if it has a big you know entertainment show often from people you know who, who are, are competitors the trace is a very high concept reality show i have have seen it and fronted by claudia Wickman, who looks amazing in it and i just want her clothes i just want to be able to click through 
and buy uh, everything she's wearing. And everybody likes, everybody likes it. And it shows, yeah, it shows a dark side to her, actually. This show is, you know, it's, it's bigger than The Masked Singer in Holland. It, was, it got more viewers. So it's, it's a very clever show made by Studio Lambert, Stephen Lambert, who's just, you know, made Gogglebox, The Circle, etc. So got some brilliant shows, including Rise and Fall, which is another high concept reality show, which is about the imbalance of power, which I think will do very well for Channel 4 next year. So I think there, there is something to be said. Yes, it's entertainment, but as with the BBC, there's often, you know, another element to it. And I think, you know, Scotland looks sumptuous in it. There's going to be lots of people wanting to go to Scotland. But it's also, it's about the psychology of society and there's an interesting and diverse, you know, range of people in there. It will have people gripped. I hope it will have me gripped anyway. I, I loved it. Okay, well, in response, the BBC said it would commission more TV and content aimed at C2DE audience, particularly lighter drama, crime drama and comedy drama, as well as factual entertainment competition formats and sports documentaries. Ofcom has also flagged that it will hold the BBC to account in light of its recent cuts in local news and radio, including just this week cuts in Northern Ireland radio as it implements its digital first strategy. Liz and Tara, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit around uh, around newsroom cuts and, and also the digital first strategy. But Tara, what have you made around this latest round of cuts um, and its impact on, on audiences in the regions? Well, I think at a time when telly is trying to you know, particularly in commercial telly, are, are being, you know, more regional. Lots of independent production companies have regional bases. When I was at Content London this week on the panels, Caroline Hollick, the head of drama at Channel 4, who, you know, works from Leeds. Channel 4 has a great base in Leeds. The BBC has done, you know, wonders for Salford going there. I just hope that it me- doesn't mean, with the cuts to local radio, that it doesn't mean a sort of retrenchment, basically, a retrenching of... Um, of the moves out to, to the regions. Liz, the DCMS are going to question some BBC execs on these planned cuts to local radio later today, in fact. Have you got any, any thoughts on how that might go? It's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, whatever they do, it's wrong. Traditionally, in the regions, ITV has always done better than, than BBC because people associated um, with their local news with, with ITV, and ITV was always very, very popular. When I looked at that survey, it seemed to me, if I read it rightly, that the biggest differential between class and, and um, appreciation was in radio. So if you cut local radio, you're going to make that worse because local radio tends to appeal to a different demographic, a, a more working class demographic. If you're really looking at this survey and caring about this survey, you'd pump money into local radio. However, if you're going with digital first and cost cutting also, you're going to take money out of local radio. So they've got to decide. I mean, everyone's getting at them. Which, which, which strategy are they going to adopt? It's very difficult. Okay, and in other news, Ofcom has announced that they're going to give the go-ahead for the BBC to increase its catalogue for older content on the iPlayer. At the moment, most programmes are available to watch only for 12 months after their initial broadcast. However, we are going to start seeing some older content start making an appearance. Tara, this feels like a big win for the BBC to increase that catalogue. Have you got any thoughts about things that, that you would like to rediscover as part of the uh, nostalgia hit from uh, iPlayer? Well, it's really funny, isn't it? Because again, you know, my children, they will watch stuff you know, on Netflix or, you know, other streaming services. And they'll go, oh, we really love the show, was it um, Ackley Bridge? And I go, yeah, yeah, that was on Channel 4 first, you know. When they watched Little Britain, yeah, yeah, that was BBC. So I, uh, Gavin Stays, I do tell, you know, I do tell them that originally came from, you know, from a UK broadcaster. And I know producers do get annoyed when they see things on global streaming services and it's not, you know, credited sometimes little in the old days, not so much now, but it would have a Netflix originals next to it. So I think this is, I mean, this has been going on for years. I'm blowing my own trumpet here, but I broke the story a million years ago about Project Kangaroo. And, and Kangaroo, if I remember correctly, was a collaboration between all the public service broadcasters in the UK, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, all to come in under, under one platform, similar to what we have with BritBox now, but it was obviously a lot earlier in the day and it was seen as anti-competitive. Is, is that right, Tara? Yeah, that, that basically sort of sums it up. But it was, um, I mean, it was early days when it was sort of killed off, I think, by the Competition Commission, if I remember rightly. But the BBC was, you know, ahead of, ahead of the game with iPlayer. And you can totally see the two sides to this argument because the independent producers who made a lot of these shows were saying, we own the IP, we want to be able to monetize that. There are different windows. We could sell that to Netflix for more money. The BBC can't afford all these rights. I think Blinkbox was the first one who really did well out of this, which I think was sold to Tesco. It's about a very, very boring stuff to do with windows and exclusivity and IP rights. 
Um, and you try and explain that to people, you know, your average person at a dinner party. And they say, why can't the BBC keep all their shows? And then you have to say, well, they don't actually own all their shows. They own them for a certain amount of time to show them on the Beeb. And then the people who, you know, put the money in at the beginning or put a percentage of the money at the beginning are allowed to exploit them on other platforms and other territories. So it's been a, a long fought battle. And I think over the years it's swung, you know, one way and the other in, in the producer's favor, and then in the broadcaster's favor. And hopefully they, they've achieved a, a middle ground. I know PACT have done, a, the Independent Producers Alliance have done a lot of, of work on this. But it, it's about also giving, you know, iPlayer the firepower to compete with those big global streaming services. And I think that's probably what swung the balance in the end. And there's been a lot of chat about reboots and, and nostalgia TV started at Edinburgh and has now come to Content London. And, and I, I saw that Kate Phillips was defending bringing back Gladiators to the BBC. So it does feel like we're in this kind of era of looking backwards. But Liz, have you got any uh, particular shows that you're hoping will make a reappearance on the uh, on the streaming services that you saw back in the day? I'm just laughing because Gladiators seems comparatively recent to me. I mean, I look at some of the stuff that people are watching, like my, my friends are watching Maygrey on Talking Pictures and or things like that. There, there is definitely a place for it. I mean, it's, it's. I don't know why, but there's a, a huge audience demand for old stuff. You've got all this fabulous new stuff coming along, and everybody's. I don't know, watching uh, Blue Lamp on Talking Pictures. I, I made a little list actually the other day. The TV shows for 2023, which are like sort of 2003, is going back 20 years ago. And I think it was the weakest link because obviously came came back recently. We've got Gladiators coming back. Survivor is coming back next year, but not on. ITV and Big Brother, but not on Channel 4. That's going to ITV. I think deal or no deal. I think the price is right. I mean, in the cost of living crisis, you know, except that the answers would probably change every five minutes, wouldn't they? <laughs> That's the price today, but with inflation, it's gone up 10%. So there are all these shows which, you know, are around from 20 years ago, which is, it's really interesting. Maybe it's a comforting thing. There is, certainly at Content London, a few producers were saying to me, there's a big demand for nostalgia at the moment and maybe it mm. is just uh, looking back to more uh, settled times this the the unknown going on at the moment so much people are slightly fearful of the future and, and it's always a fantasy yes. well i hope they bring back those hallowed media parties that we all heard about that were all swashing in champagne and, and caviar that happened in the 80s as well maybe that will be part of the uh, the revolution <laughs> in tv as well don't you believe it about the parties but actually it was true <laughs> Well, let's get straight into the media quiz now. Everyone's favourite part of the media podcast. And this week we are playing Media Moves, which looks at the changes and refreshes across the industry. Right, you're all used to this now. The rules are simple and easy. If you know the answer, you buzz in with your name. So Liz, you will say... Liz, I think. And Tara, you will say... Tara, but in a a less sinister voice. Sorry, that sounded quite sinister. (laughs) Keep it as sinister as you like. Um, Right, off we go. So question one, who has been named the new editor of the FT Weekend? Tara. Go for it, Tara. She's one of my old bosses, the lovely Janine Gibson. That's right. Congratulations to the brilliant Janine, one of our guests of the show. And that will mean one more female editor of the news in the UK, right, Liz? Yeah, good, good news altogether. So we're seeing progress, even at the beginning, from the beginning of this podcast to the end. We've already seen a bit of progress, so hopefully <laughs> that will continue. And which ex-GB news director has moved to the BBC? Liz. I think Liz just pipped it there. Well, I'd like to be able to say it was a black woman editor, but it's John McAndrew, and congratulations to him. So, do you know? Do you have you met John? Do you know anything about him? Could you give us a bit more insight into why he got that job? I met him when he was at uh, Sky. He was he was very good. Oh, and when he launched, what was it? The um, oh, the agenda, and also um, it was Bolton and Friends. Bolton and Friends. That was it. Yeah, as well. And more recently, he launched the Andrew Neil Show for Channel Four. Absolutely. Yeah. And sticking with news, which news channel has had a rebrand for the first time in 52 years? Tara. Oh, Liz. Oh, Tara, I think you might have got that. Oh, Liz is giving out a good way the answer. Tara, (laughs) if you heard that, then that means that you're a winner. Can you give us a, can can you give us, give us the answer? Uh, ITN. It was ITN. According to ITN, the fresh brand identity is built around a newly defined purpose captured by its strapline, truth to life. As this is an audio podcast and we can't see the new rebrand, do you want to give us a, a visual description of what the new logo looks like for ITN? Uh, yes, I'll try and um, uh, describe it as evocatively as I can. It's sort of like the ITN, uh, same uh, letters, ITN, and sort of around it is a sort of wobbly rainbow. I'm sure that 
they'll hate me for that because they probably paid a lot of money for it. But it's a, it's a very, it looks very beautiful, sort of like wires, sort of, sort of going around it in lovely colours. I think the actual logo looks great. Liz, the company said it wanted to signal its evolution from a legacy British news organisation to a global player. So do you think that it resonates with how ITN has developed over the last few years? Absolutely, yes. I think, I think it's a great move. I was talking to Rachel Cole only last night and I'm compl- convinced this is a really good move. It's sort of like being unscripted, you know, being the, the, the company that does all the unscripted, it's going to do sport and news and it, it can use its archives to make really fascinating programmes about, say, true crime and things. I quite like truth to life. I think the whole point is that you want to say true to life. I think it's really quite quite snappy, quite clever. So I, I think it's, you know, one to watch and good luck. I think it's great. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. Where can our listeners find each of you and keep up with your work? Liz, where can we, we where can we find you in the media landscape these days? Oh, well, you have to sort of look me up on the internet. I am a professor emerita, which means that I'm no longer full time at City University of London, but that's definitely where I was for the last oh gosh, nearly twenty years teaching. I hope a lot of very good journalists. And Tara, where can we find you? I'm going to resist the urge to say in a bar somewhere. Um, I'm <laughs> around and about, but mostly in the uh, Guardian broadcast and the Royal Television Society uh, magazine television. Well, thank you both. You have been brilliant guests as usual. And thank you also to our loyal listeners. We hope that you have also enjoyed today's show. And of course, to help us support the show, please make sure you've done these two very small things. Follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on a Friday by subscribing to podfollow.com forward slash the media podcast. And make sure you tell a friend to tell a friend about this week's show. My name is Faraz Osman. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. And it was a Rethink Audio production. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.